All right, good Thursday afternoon, everyone. It's JV. We've got a great discussion ahead for you today, and uh, I'm excited. I've been actually planning this one since uh, the whole Paranormal Reality team got back from our trip to Ohio and Tennessee. If you watched our live investigations, then you are already very, very familiar with the Brownella Cottage, and you're also probably very familiar, at least through our lens, of the, uh, the 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 man who lived there and who notoriously and whose history uh, is one of a complex uh, combination of politics and religion. Of course, I'm talking about Bishop William Brown, who lived in Brownella Cottage. We didn't really know who he was. We had some idea when we went to Galleon, Ohio, and investigated at Brownella Cottage. But while we were there, we learned a lot. We learned a lot from the executive director of the Galleon History Center, uh, Tanisha Pickering. She told us who Bishop Brown was, and we had no idea what a complex character this man was and how his legacy continues to this day. I don't know if it's a good legacy or a bad legacy. You'll have to decide for yourself. He has uh, earned the moniker Bad Bishop Brown. Uh, He's also called the Red Bishop. And if you're wondering why, we're going to explain all that to you in just a minute because I've got Tanisha Pickering joining us to talk about Bishop Brown, Galleon, Ohio, Brownella Cottage, and uh, some of the other things that the Galleon History Center does and is doing. I know these interviews are kind of not hit or miss. We just don't have a fixed day that we do them. I, I do them when the guests are available, and I'm available. It's got to be both coming together and then we do the interviews. I do want to mention that we have another great, fascinating live investigation coming up. It's just a week, well, a week from today, I'll be on the road getting there. And uh, it is in Bland, Missouri. It's going to be quite a drive for me in in the van full of equipment. Britt will be flying in, and we'll be investigating a place called Cooper Hill. I think it's called the Cooper Hill Village, and it's a bit of a ghost town. It was basically a small village that was abandoned. It's owned by a single person now, and there's a lot of paranormal activity there. And we'll be investigating live uh, Friday and Saturday, the 27th and 28th of October. And while it's not quite Halloween, it's a, we're considering it our Halloween investigation because it's the weekend right before Halloween. And we won't be on location Tuesday night, which is the 31st, which is Halloween. Anyway, so enough about that. Just remember, put it in your calendars, October 27th, 28th, our next live investigation. It's time to talk about Bad Bishop Brown, the Brownella Cottage, Galleon, Ohio, and all things related to that with someone who's become a good friend of the program and a good friend personally. This is uh, Tanisha. Tanisha, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Hi, thank you for having me. So you must be kind of crazy busy right now because in addition to being the executive director of the History Center itself, Halloween time is a pretty active time in general for you guys. You must be going a little bit crazy right now. Oh, yeah. It's our it's our busiest time of the year now between now and December. And what, Bishop- is it the story of, of Bishop Brown or the reputation of Brown Ella Cottage or something else in your portfolio that makes Halloween so particularly busy for you? Um, certainly Brownella's reputation uh, as being haunted. And we, we enjoy playing into that and letting people come experience what we experience all the time here. But Bishop Brown also died Halloween morning. So it's That's right. his death. That's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, and and when we get to the to the end of our discussion, I'll give you an opportunity to to mention any events you've got coming up. I don't know if you still have stuff, and we're getting really close to Halloween. But let's take a second here first for for those who didn't get a chance to watch the live investigation we did in Brownella Cottage and the discussions we've had since about Bad Bishop Brown and why he is notorious and what his history is. Give us the like you know couple of paragraphs. Of, of who Bishop Brown was, and then we'll get into some detail. Oh, a couple of paragraphs. You're testing me. Um, Bishop William Montgomery Brown had an incredibly successful career in the Episcopal Church. Um, before he wrote a couple of controversial books during his tenure as the Bishop of Arkansas, uh, it really put him at odds with the church, with his peers. He ends up coming resigning his position as bishop with the caveat that he can keep his seat in the house of bishops. So he's still a bishop, but he's just retired. Um, he then goes through quite a conversion first to science. Then he becomes a socialist and ultimately a communist. He ends up writing the book communism and Christianism in 1919. And this is the book that lands him in real hot water with the Episcopal church. They charge him with 23 counts of heresy in 1924. He is found guilty and um, deposed from the House of Bishops. So that is how he becomes our bad Bishop Brown in a nutshell. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's kind of hard to understand how a bishop, now it, it's not easy to become a bishop in the Episcopal Church or the Catholic Church or any church for that matter. I mean, you really gotta, right. you gotta, you gotta work at it. You gotta know your stuff and you gotta be committed. And he attains, oh. he attains that position. And then, and then he makes this conversion philosophically to the point where he basically says Jesus Christ was not real. It was just, it's a metaphor, basically. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine the church elders back in, in the 1920s looked at that and said, oh, let's keep an open mind about this. <laughs> no, they did everything in their power to convince him to resign. Um, actually, the first time that he was presented for heresy was 1922, and the church didn't want to go through that messy trial. Uh, they knew it was not going to be a good look for them to have to come out and say, look, we have a heretic in our midst. Um, they tried to convince him to resign. He wasn't going to go quietly. So they had they had to, to end up putting him on trial. It's really insane. I mean, when, when you start looking into this stuff, and, and we had the opportunity of, while we were investigating at Brownella Cottage, actually you were showing us some of the books he had written. Uh, he, he was a pro yeah. prolific author. I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff, and he was a deep thinker. I'm not going to even begin to pretend he wasn't a smart man because he clearly was. Uh, but oh, yeah. but his views were just controversial. Um, before we get into some of the books and some of those ideas that he was trying to espouse or was espousing at the time, let's talk a little bit about his childhood because the man came from a very, very difficult childhood. Oh, yeah. Um, I kind of feel like this is the jumping off point of where we eventually get to. Uh, when he was about seven, his father um, enlisted in the Civil War. He ends up getting really sick during his service, um, coming back home and passing away. And his mother is widowed with three young children, doesn't have a whole lot of choice, and ends up bounding him out, um, which is kind of a form of indentured servitude to a family by the name of Yoder. They were Dunkards, which is a sect of the Amish. Um, and he worked their farm from sunup until sundown, um, doing physical labor on their farm. He did not get any sort of formal education. He slept in the calf barn with the cattle. Um, they, they probably fed him the bare minimum. 
and he was there until he was about 15 or 16 when finally the county were taking neighbor complaints seriously about his his conditions on their farm and they they stepped in and removed him and placed him with the gardner family who um adopted him as their own and and he had a lifelong connection to the gardner family uh, you know, it's so difficult for people who are born in the 20th century or the 21st century now uh, to to think. And I, actually, I shouldn't say 20th century. I should say the latter part of the 20th century. You know, um, you know, 60, 1960s, 70s, and 80s. It's so hard for folks born in that period uh, to now in the United States to think about a time when you may basically sell your child off to uh, to a family to be uh, slave labor to them. Uh, but that was, yeah. it was kind of a common practice back then. I mean, I mean, it didn't happen all over the place, but it wasn't something that, that was necessarily um, rare. And, uh, you know, sometimes it worked out okay for the, for the child. They got taken care of, but in this case, he didn't, he did not get taken. Oh. In fact, he was treated very, very poorly, which as you pointed out is probably one of the, well, it has to be one of the pivotal uh, events of his life that made his political philosophies turn out to be what they did. For sure. I mean, I think um, with him getting into socialism and, and ultimately communism, I have to wonder if, in looking at those, you know, theories, if he felt like maybe his mother had had some sort of societal safety net to fall back on, she would not have had to have, um, do that to him or his siblings. He had siblings and she um, she did the same thing to them and really split and tore the family up. So, so life could have been really different for Bishop Brown, you know, had his, his father not passed. Now, once he um, was placed with, and I can't remember the name of the family that you said that actually took care of him. I think he was in his teens at the time, right? Yeah. Once he was placed there, then things started to turn around for him. And uh, he ended up uh, uh, saving some money. And I think he went off and, and he got a job as a coach driver or something like that at you <laughs> yes uh he he went back to the fourth grade at the age of 21 um he was between 6'2 and 6'3 um he was a tall guy he was really embarrassed to go back to the fourth grade and have to you know resume getting his education at that age and so he went out west to missouri got this job driving coach uh for a judge out in missouri and also you know pursued his education and got pretty much what we would consider the equivalent of a GED today. And it was that, uh, that, that uh, judge that kind of uh, served as a mentor for him for a little bit, a uh, little bit of time, but then he met, and maybe you, you can tell us how this happened. He met uh, Mary, Mary Brad, Scranton, Brad, Scranton Bradford. Is that the right name? Do I have the name right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I yep. always find it, find it interesting because I'm very familiar with Scranton, Pennsylvania. So the name Scranton in there is, is always curious to me. But he met her. What, how'd that come about and why was that important? So he comes home from Missouri, back to the Gardner family, and he's telling them that he has a, you know, feels like he has a calling to go into the ministry. And lucky for him, the Gardners had heard of Mary Scranton Bradford in Cleveland, a wealthy real estate heiress who would pay for young men to go into the seminary. And they were able to get him connected to Mary. Mary agreed to underwrite his education at Kenyon College, but first she hired some private tutors to kind of get him up to snuff. Um, and then also he, she sent him to Fairbault, Minnesota to go to the Seabury Divinity School. Uh, he spent some time there kind of getting um, up to par a little bit before he finally did go to Kenyon uh, to seminary school in Gambier, Ohio. 
Now, obviously, we're going to talk about this, too, but Mary is the mother of his eventual wife, Ella, and we'll get into those yeah. details. But one of the things you told us when we were there, and it's just stuck with me, is you you gave us the quote. Uh, you said that uh, Bishop Brown actually loved Mary before he loved Ella. Was that more of a familiar love, like a, a family-type love, or did, did he actually have a romantic love for Mary? Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. We were actually talking about this earlier this week, and it made me pull his autobiography back off the shelf. I read it moons ago, uh, many moons ago, but um, I looked at it again, and in my head, it stuck with me that he said, I loved her first, which leaves it open to interpretation, right? You know, what kind of love is that? Motherly, romantic. Um, but in fact, he says it was love at first sight. And that, and he said, I fell in love with her. So that in my mind leaves no room for question anymore. <laughs> yeah, that makes it romantic. Now, what was the age difference between the two? Do we know? You, you must. Oh, goodness. Probably 20 or 30 years. So do you, I, 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 I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to disparage Bishop Brown more than history already has. Uh, but do you think that was a love of her means or a love for her personally? I just, I, this probably, if you don't want to answer that, that's fine. But I'm curious what you think. No, it's fine. I actually have a K2 meter back here. I'm like waiting for him to like pop in and yell at me from the other side. Uh, I think that he loved her like almost intellectually like he talks about like he worshipped her he admired her greatly he felt that she was a really respectable woman whether that was because of her wealth or not um he yeah he he really just admired who she was i guess so uh mary mary um ends up paying for him and supporting him so he can uh he can begin his work as a clergyman he goes to um goes to the seminary. He becomes a clergyman. At what point does his uh, attention turn to Ella, Mary's daughter? That's a good question. We we don't really know much about their courtship. Um, probably the first time that they would have met would have been in 1879, uh, and they are engaged by 1882. So somewhere in there. So it's pretty. He meets. Yeah. He describes her as a cute, dear thing in his in his book and his autobiography I, i'm trying to remember i'm sure you've told us this too but the age difference between he and and ella was it significant or were they more contemporaries no um they were two years uh bishop older um one of the things we we know and again almost everything we know is because you told us and you educated us while we're there but one of the things we know is that ella uh becoming uh, bishop brown's wife was a bit of a I guess a bit of an eccentric, at least socially. She did not like to be uh, involved uh, with any of the social functions that Bishop Brown would have at the home, uh, Brownella Cottage. And that seemed to be something that kind of haunted her through her life. Yeah, she uh, seemed to be a bit of a, a recluse, especially if Bishop was hosting. Um, she would stay in her room. Uh, the... We don't have a lot of primary sources for Ella. We don't have any of her papers, her letters, her diaries, um, which haunts me, uh, <laughs> honestly. Uh, so we don't really know much about her from a first-person perspective, but we do have um, letters and things that describe her um, and describe her as being shy, socially awkward, um, almost verging on 
on rudeness, people kind of, I think, had the opinion that she was rude, but I think she really was just super shy. Yeah. Uh, as their life together progressed, now talk a little bit about his professional work as a clergyman. You you touched on okay. it in the in the original paragraph, but give us the timeline of how he moved from um, um, seminary to to becoming a bishop and how that worked. So um, his first assignment of his career was at Grace Episcopal Church, which the History Center also owns. It's right across the street from Brunella Cottage, and that's how I, kind of how they land here in Galleon, um, is at Grace Episcopal. Um, so he spends a lot of time during um, his tenure at Grace just as, you know, a priest, a rector at this point. He has a, discovers he has a real knack for creating new churches and getting people to join them. And he created new churches, um, about five of them locally, and Cyrus, Cardington, Crestline, Upper Sandusky, and Mount Gilead. Um, and kind of his crowning achievement as the rector of Grace was that he it became a self-supporting parish under his care. So by 1891, he then becomes promoted to the Archdeacon of Ohio. They kind of um, reward all of his hard work um, in Galleon and in Crawford County by making him the Archdeacon of Ohio, where he's the Archdeacon of Mission. So his his job is still to create new churches and, and gather congregations at that point. Um, and then when he is the Archdeacon of Missions for the state of Ohio, he writes a book called The Church for Americans. And this is like a smash hit among Episcopalians. Um, he became very well known for writing that book. And that kind of got his foot out in the door, in the door out in Arkansas. So that made him a national so, national figure, maybe even an international figure. And that book was a, was a um, basically, uh, from what I understand, was, was an outline of what the Episcopalian religion was about. And, and it was very welcoming. And the church smiled when they saw that book, right? That was one, that one was yeah. okay with the church, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's that book, he writes this book, it's a smash hit. And he manages when he's the Archdeacon of Ohio to start taking five months off a year to come back to Brunella Cottage and continue writing. And this is a pattern that you see all the way through him be, being the Bishop of Arkansas. Even when he was splitting his time between Little Rock and Galleon, they would come back to Brunella Cottage from June through October so he could write. And the church didn't like that. At least the the Diocese of Arkansas did not like that. They actually nicknamed him the absentee bishop. So obviously the reason we're even having this discussion, other than the fact that he, he's an interesting character and he had a beautiful home that uh, is part of Galleon history, uh, is, the, is because he started, to, his view started to change. He started to think differently about religion, about the church, not just the Episcopalian church, but a Christianity in, 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 in its entirety. And he writes a book. Well, let's talk about the book he wrote about race first, because that was, I oh. think, the first one where where maybe the church started to say, oh, wait a minute, we, have, we might have an issue here. Yes. In 1907, he publishes The Crucial Race Question. Uh, and in this book, he's arguing for nationwide segregation in the Episcopal Church. And he really manages to make nobody happy with that book. Um, the North, of course, is against segregation entirely. And uh, those in the South don't want to see Blacks have their own churches. They don't want them to have that same hierarchy of 
you know, deacons, archdeacons, and bishops as you would in a white church. So he, he makes nobody happy with that book. Um, and he, I do think it's important to mention that he does uh, end up later in life denouncing the things that he wrote in that book. He acknowledges his racism and his prejudice um, and apologizes for that. You know, it's fascinating, too, because not only was he a deep thinker, but he clearly had various changes of heart over the course of his lifetime, whether it's being a Christian, as we would define it now, to moving to a point where he was denouncing the regular teachings of Christianity um, yeah. or being, I don't know what he what, what he was politically prior to him becoming a devout communist, but I have to assume he, you know, he was a capitalist prior and then he ends up denouncing capitalism and becoming a communist. And here you say he wrote a book about race relations within the church and then he later said, geez, you know what? I was wrong about that. Uh, so he his his views evolved on a lot of topics. Oh, yeah. He was always reading and and I think really searching his whole life. Well, that's one of the things that I found fascinating, too, when we were at Brownella Cottage is you showed us, you know, a few rooms that had bookcases. And, and you said these are some of the books that he would read. And I was looking at some of those titles. Any one of those titles probably would have put my head into a spin. You know, my brain would have been melted by the time I got done reading it. And that was his regular fare. I mean, he was truly an intellectual. Yeah. He, he really was. He was he was very, very intelligent. OK, so at some point, um, his life experience. Uh, already laid the foundation for this, I'll have to say. And at some point he starts to embrace the teachings of Karl Marx. Uh, do we know when that started to happen? And did he ever explain why it started to happen? So um, I'm going to move us back just a little bit. He writes the level plan for Church Union in 1910, three years after he publishes The Crucial Race Question. And this book is arguing for levelism within the Episcopal Church. He wants to do away with that hierarchy of, like, spiritual authority. No more bishops, archdeacons, deacons, that kind of thing. Um, this is highly controversial. Nobody likes this book. Nobody's agreeing with him. And this really puts him at odds with his peers um, in the church. And this is kind of um, when he resigns his position as the Bishop of Arkansas. And he comes back home to Brunella Cottage, and he's just greeted with an onslaught of hate mail about the level plan for church union. And he he's low. He's depressed. And his doctor at the time, Dr. McFarlane, acknowledges that Bishop likes science. He was always, like, interested in science. He liked astronomy, um, but suggested to him maybe check out Charles Darwin. And so Bishop starts reading Darwin, and his first conversion, as he would call it, um, was to science. In 1913, he wrote a 140-page open letter to the church um, announcing his conversion to science, and this was kind of his break with literal Christianity. This is when he stops um, believing in the Bible in a literal sense. At this point, everything in the Bible to him becomes symbolism, stories, parables, that kind of thing. Uh, if you're just joining so us, we've had, a, excuse me, sorry, Tanisha, I just want to, we had a couple of questions saying, uh, we just got here, who are we talking about, and are his books still available? Uh, we're talking about Bishop William Brown, who is the 
first? And is he the only bishop to have been tried for heresy in the United States? Or have there been others since? Um, I think there's been others since. Not 100% sure if they were found guilty, but he was um, the first American to be tried for heresy. And, and I, I, had, I had read, too, that he was actually the first bishop to be tried in the world to be tried for heresy since the Protestant Reformation. Is that true? Do you know? Yes, it had been over 300 years um, since the last heresy trial. Yeah. <laughs> in where when they they kind of like drudged this charge out of antiquity too. <laughs> yeah. So here yeah, here you have a basically a renowned uh, Christian Episcopalian bishop whose beliefs start to change to the point where the church gets so bothered by it that they charge him with many, many counts of heresy and they convict him and they excommunicate him from the Episcopalian church. When did, that's who we're talking about, by the way, uh, who, who asked that question, Lori. Um, hey, Kate, good to see you. And thank you for answering, Lori, but I wanted to give a little more detail. Pam, good to see you as well. And the que answer to the question, can you still read his books? Are his books still in print? Can you still buy them, Tanisha? I would imagine they are. Oh, yes. We have hundreds of copies of his books, um, and they are available in our gift shop here in Galleon, but also on our website. I, I ship them to people all the time. Okay, so galleonhistory.com, you can go there and, and people can find the books there? Yep, under our shop tab. Okay, perfect. So at what point does he write the book, and I'm going to mess up the name now, and I had it just a minute ago, um, communi what, Communism and Christianism? What, what's the name of the yep. Is that the name of it? I don't remember now. Christianism, banish gods from the sky and capitalists from the earth. Yeah, boy, that's a haunting title because it just has so many meanings. But that book really, really outlines uh, his move away from traditional Christianity and his embracing of the communist political ideology, right? Yeah, it it was pretty quick. Um a friend actually gifted him a subscription to the Ripsaw magazine. It's a socialist magazine. And Bishop very quickly um, falls in love with socialism, for lack of better words. Um, and that is around 1916. And by 1918, he's a communist. Yeah. Now, if we put this in historical perspective, the Russian Revolution, where Lenin took over Russia and, and put communism into place, was what, 1917, 1918, right in there, um, yeah. just as, as World War I was getting close to, the Russians had already been defeated, had already surrendered in World War I, and then the, the revolution takes place. And so he also embraces Lenin. Eventually, he braces Stalin. He's got a picture on his, the wall of his office in his study of Marx. I think it's Marx, Lenin, and Stalin, right? Is that what that picture is? Yep. And, uh, you know, so he, he, he writes, he espouses. I think at one point you told us that Ella, his wife, may have been a little bit uncomfortable with the communist membership and all that. And he seemed to not necessarily renounce. Did he renounce it? And then tell us, tell us that story. Um, so he revoked his membership. Uh, we have a letter from the FBI files because they did their fair share of digging into Bishop Brown uh, framed in his room where he's revoking his membership to the American Communist Party due to Ella's fears. She really doesn't want him tied um, money wise because that's your membership. You're donating money. I think at one point he was donating $12 a month, which at the time period was quite a bit of money, um, to the American Communist Party. So um, 
that's what he says anyway. But we do have his um, American Communist Party membership card um, under glass in his room as well. And that suspiciously picks up again in 1936, um, about a year after Ella passes away. So I, I do think she probably played a pretty significant hand in, in him at least um, aligning himself financially with the Communist Party. I have to ask this of you, and I know I asked it when we were there, and I asked it during the investigations when we were doing EVP session and similar uh, techniques, but what do you think Bishop Brown, if, if, if he's aware of what history had shown us about the communist system, particularly the Soviet Union, particularly Stalin, who was more barbaric than Hitler was from a historical perspective, what do you think his views would have been about that and do you think he would have changed his his beliefs at all i have to have every hope that he would um not have been a supporter of stalin um once he became aware of what stalin truly was doing um i don't know it's hard it's hard to imagine if he would have, have totally walked away from communism or so, if he would have found argue that maybe what stalin was trying to implement wasn't really true communism. Right. So what happens in a lot of cases is people who believe in an ideology like that, they, they hold the examples of a Stalin or a Castro or these other dictators that are brutal. And they say, well, they, they became power hungry. They became corrupt and they didn't truly embrace communism or the system. They just became tyrants on their own. And I denounce them, but I still believe in the system. So you're, you're thinking that's probably what he would have done. I think it's it's likely. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to speculate. We don't really know. And it's really a shame because it would be interesting to know if his views would have changed at all. Let's talk, because we're going to run out of time before we run out of topic here. Let's talk about <laughs> Brownella Cottage itself, because we spent two nights there. It's a beautiful place. Talk about what happened. I mean, you, uh, Bishop Brown died on October 31st, 1937, I believe. And then basically the place is just shut up or closed up and it's a time capsule. Yeah. So Ella died first. She died in 1935 and then Bishop followed um, on Halloween in 1937. Uh, he ended up willing, of course, he remembered special people in his will um, and, and took care of um, certain people in his will, but left the majority of his estate to the betterment of Marxist communism. Um, which were kind of shocking final wishes. Uh, he inherited his mother-in-law's money, um, her fortune. So some of her family members come crawling out of the woodwork, you know, to sue for their piece of the, fa of the Scranton family money. Um, Mary's will, Ella's will, they were airtight. Nobody ended up, you know, being successful, um, in suing for money. But by the time they get through all of those legalities, uh, we're in the midst of the 1940s. We're in the midst of the communist Red Scare. Nobody's giving um, the Brown estate money to communism. And he has some executors of his estate that look over the house. They hire caretakers, uh, people to uh, live in the cottage and take care of it. But everything that they owned stayed in this house and the house was empty for about 45 years before it um, came to the Galleon Historical Society to be a house museum. We're watching right now uh, some clips from the walkthrough we did with Tanisha when uh, we were being 
or preparing for our tonight investigation at the Brownella Cottage. And the things you're seeing here, Tanisha, they're almost entirely original to the home. And they would have been things that Bishop Brown, Mary, his mother-in-law, Ella, his wife, either sat in, used, uh, stored things in, whatever it happens to be, right? Yeah. Yes. Everything in the house is original to them. Um, it's like they just left yesterday. Uh, so it's it's really unique and it's really rare to have a historic home filled entirely with its original furniture like we do here at Brunella Cottage. Yeah, it, it is very, very rare. Um, talk a little bit about some of the things that we're seeing on the screen. We, we, we basically just walked through the, the first floor. Um, now we're going up to uh, the second floor and, and, then, and then the third floor. And the third floor you use for storage for the historical center itself, right? Yes, uh, the Galleon community donates things um, from Galleon history to us for preservation. Uh, our third floor of Brunella Cottage houses our 3D objects, so you're going to see lots of um, larger pieces up there. But right off that third floor, there is a little astronomy porch, and maybe it, it, it made the video. <laughs> I can't remember. You guys did open it. You were on it the second night. Yeah, the se out there. that's right. The second night of investigation, we opened the program. Britt and I stood up there uh, and, and began the broadcast. Uh, pretty cool. So as you, as you look at this, we're walking through now the landing on the second floor. Uh, Tanisha is walking into Ella's room, um, which yeah. Ella's room is interesting, too, because as you'll see right here, that her wedding dress, you've got in a display case there, too. Um this is the room that basically you said she would kind of retreat to when uh, when Bishop Brown was having uh, social functions. Yes, um, that you see the sitting the tower there, her the benches around the window, um, that big window there. The Union High School was right across the street. She would often sit there and watch children play. I think it's important to mention. I didn't mention we were talking about his will. They didn't have children, um, so there was nobody. There were no children to leave. Um, their fortune to when they died. Um, I paused this. I, I, I just paused this because this is the letter you were talking about, right? This is the letter uh, where he renounced his uh, communist membership. Is that right? Yes. And, and you know, has to very much gush about how their, you know, beliefs and their heart are still with the cause, but he just cannot financially support them anymore. Yeah. Because Ella said. <laughs> yeah. Um, fascinating stuff. Talk a little bit also about um, the aftermath of the excommunication from the Episcopal Church, because that was not the end of Bishop Brown's uh, bishop title. He, he, he found another way to maintain that. Talk about that. Oh, um, so once he's deposed from the Episcopal Church, he takes a position as a bishop in the old Roman Catholic Church as a wandering bishop. A wandering bishop has no real role. They're not really um, overseeing a diocese. But I think for all intents and purposes, it was a money transaction. Uh, he wanted to call himself a bishop until the day that he died. And the old Roman Catholic Church was willing to take him in. And he served in that role for what's what's the math on that? About 10 years? Is that what we're looking at? Until um, he died. Yeah. Um, so from 1925 until 1937. So 12 years. Uh, one of the things that you told us about Bishop Brown as well, and uh, despite what you may think of him, if you if you look at his relig religious career or his political career, he was a very generous man. Oh, gosh, yes. We, we cannot say enough about his philanthropy in Galleon. Um, he 
got this town through the Great Depression. He was making people's house payments. Lots of kids remember him standing out at the wrought iron fence out front, handing out nickels to the school kids as they got out of school. Again, the Union High School was right across the street um, from the house. So, I mean, he was handing out nickels to the kids. Um, he paid for many Galleon kids to go to college. Um, we have a story of him. He would go on long walks. I think, like you said, he's a deep thinker and he would pace and he would walk as he was thinking and like lost in thought. And he returned home from a walk one day barefoot. I think he had run into somebody who had, um, you know, pretty rough pair of shoes on and he just gave him the shoes right off his feet. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing that that uh, particularly if you, again, put this in historical perspective during the 1930s in the U.S., uh, a lot of people were struggling and they were struggling uh, by quite a bit. And for someone like that to come out and, and just offer whatever help he could offer, whether it was financial or, as you just pointed out, the shoes off of his feet, uh, that that's a that's a pretty incredible and remarkable person. Um, again, despite what you think about his politics, despite what you think about his his religious views or his views on Christianity, um, certainly somebody that was important to the community. And I would imagine his legacy remains important to the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is a considerable amount of money uh, that the History Center has in an investment so that we can continue to preserve his house and um, keep it a house museum. Well, I have to say, I mean, we were awestruck by how well preserved everything is so you guys are doing a fantastic job not just maintaining the structure but everything that's within the structure i mean are you where are you right now are you in your office or are you at brownella no i'm at brownella i'm in the little reading nook where you guys have okay that. yeah that's what i thought so over your left shoulder is the uh, communism and christianism book right the, the white book the yeah right there <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So people can see right now, live in real time, all the books that are in there, they're all, and you were showing us magazines from the 1930s that are laid out on a, on a shelf yeah. over there. Um, pretty interesting stuff. And you guys are doing a fantastic job. I want to talk a little bit about, um, about some of the paranormal stuff that we caught because you've, you've been, you've done it, this paranormal investigating there more than we have. You, you, as you said, you've got a K2 meter set up right now uh, as we're having this discussion. <laughs> but while we were there, we caught a number of uh, voices coming through a spirit box. We caught some EVP. We had some, a lot of REM pod and K2 meter hits. One of the things, and, and I don't have the clip here, but but people who saw the investigation or watched our evidence review will, will know what I'm talking about. When Britt and I were right where you are, basically, it was mm -hmm. quiet until we started talking about his books and communism. And then all of a sudden, the K2 meters, the REM pod, everything started to react um, yeah. do you remember that when that was happening to us, A and B, does that, have you had that experience before where you've had devices in there and when you start talking about this stuff, you get a response? Yeah. Uh, talking about communism, talking about Bishop's heresy, um, asking him pointed questions, uh, not necessarily provoking, but, um, it's a good way to get him on the line. Uh, there's a story that we tell on our ghost tours. I, we were doing a public hunt one night and I was monitoring a group that was up in his bedroom and they were getting nothing. They had like a mag light and a cat ball on his bed. And I don't know how you feel about the mag light flashlights and the light activity that you can get with them, but it was on the bed and it, it was just dead. 
quiet. We were getting nothing. The group was talking about, you know, we should move. Where should we move to? And one person in the group says, hold on. I have one more question to ask Bishop Brown. And we're like, okay, whatever. So he, he asked, are you still a communist? And that flashlight turned on instantly. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very much uh, the similar experience. That's what we were experiencing when Britt and I were in that room. Quiet, quiet, quiet. And then we start talking about communism, particularly the books. And I think Britt was actually reading from the book. He was reading a passage from Karl Marx that I, I think is in the foreword of of the book yeah. for communism and christianism and all of a sudden the devices start going nuts uh and then and then they stopped when we stopped um so that makes a lot of sense and by the way that room you're talking about with the, the anecdote you just shared that bed was the bed he passed in right yes yeah um you do how how often do you, do you set up devices around uh brownella when you're there like the k2 <laughs> that you've got behind you um it just depends um, a lot of times when I'm in here, I'm working. Uh, sometimes if I'm in here um, meeting a tour group or something and I'm alone and I'm hearing things, I'll, I'll whip out some equipment. You're alone. I have questions for them. Like, I can't wait to, to have a conversation with Bishop about this whole I fell in love with Mary. <laughs> yeah, let <laughs> us let us know what you find out when it comes to that. And I have to say, you're a lot braver than a lot of folks because a lot of folks, if you start hearing noises, aren't going to put out equipment. They're going to actually leave until they can have someone come and be with them instead of doing that. But so you're awfully brave. I want to play another exchange we have because you you made this make sense to us later uh, after the fact. So I'm going to play. This is uh, the Ghost Sisters up in Mary's bedroom. And it's a quick clip. But uh, you'll quickly hear a response to the ghost box. Is there James here? <gasps> what? We're both here? Okay, so earlier, prior to that little little clip that we saw, uh, we thought, I think we heard a name come through the spirit box. And we heard James. Yeah. So at the time, it didn't necessarily ring any bells for us. And then the ghost sisters continued their questioning and they said, is there a James here? And we get that voice coming through saying, we're both here. Now, didn't you tell us after the fact that uh, William, uh, Bishop Brown's brother was named James? Yeah, I can't believe I didn't catch it as it was happening and unfolding, but we might have been yakking. I don't know. <laughs> Well, there's a lot going on during these investigations, so I'm not surprised that, that one of us or all of us were, dist were distracted. But that's a pretty interesting hit through that ghost box to have this conversation, hear the name James come through, and then to ask the question, is this James here? And then to get the, we're both here. Yeah. I mean, it kind of gives me chills just <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> But that's the type of stuff we were getting there. One of the things we didn't talk about, and we actually didn't get much activity, although there is a clip, and I didn't, I didn't load it here to play it because it's we we get a response in the spirit box, but it's covered by one of the ghost sisters asking questions, so we don't hear it clearly. But we know what happened, and I'll I'll, I'll explain it. And I want your thoughts on it. So. The two ghosts, two of the three ghost sisters, one wasn't with them for the investigation the second night, were in the bishop's study. Now, the study was a former church, right? Yes. It was a former church that was no longer being used as a church, and it was converted to the bishop's study. It was right behind the Brownella Cottage. And uh, the two ghost sisters are in there, and one of them says, 
What was what was the bishop's name? Didn't he have a name or did they just call him Bishop or something like that, she says. And I don't think Mandy is the second one, answers that question. But a little while <laughs> later, on the ghost box, the name William comes through. And yeah. Mandy, Mandy didn't pick up the fact that that had happened right after Chastity asked the question of what his name was. And Mandy says, what did, what did that just say? And Chastity, who, didn't, who was the one that asked the question, didn't know his name, said, oh, it just said William. And, but they didn't catch it, and they just moved on. But that in itself is pretty striking, isn't it? It was. I remember watching it in real time because I was like, that's his name. Like, I was in command center. Like, he just said his name. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't catch it, unfortunately, at the time. In retrospect, like, oh, my God, how did we not realize that had just happened? But that was a pretty cool hit, too. Talk about that that study, though. Have you had a lot of activity in there in the past when you've done your investigations? Yeah, I tell you when it gets really interesting is around Halloween because uh, Bishop was laid out in there. That's where they did his viewing. Um, it's the, the house always. We always have activity, but it's really interesting where we have it. Um, we have some hot spots, but sometimes you can go out there and you can have incredible activity in the study. And then some nights you go out there and it's like nobody's home. Yeah, and we, we, it was pretty quiet for us with the exception of that one hit. I don't think we, we caught a lot there, but we didn't spend a lot of time there, to be fair. There was so much happening. Go out there. I was really hoping if the the guys went out that uh, Bishop might show up a little more. Yeah. Well, we're hoping to make another visit to Brownella because it's such a great place. And if that's if we get a chance to do that, yeah, if we get a chance to do that, we'll definitely do that. Let's talk about moving away from the specific uh, Bishop Brown and Brownella story. Let's talk a little bit what, what you've got coming up here for the remaining week and a half uh, as we head to Halloween. You got more stuff going on. Sure. Saturday, we're doing Murder Mystery Clue here in Brownella Cottage. It is a live-action version of the Clue board game. Uh, we play it in the dark. Um, Bishop, Ella, Mary are all suspects, as well as a few people from Galleon history. Um, so the premise is the Browns are having a dinner party and the caretaker ends up dead. So it's up to you to solve the mystery. Who killed the caretaker, in what room, and with what weapon? So, that uh, sounds like so much fun. How does it work? So, I mean, I imagine you, there's only a limited number of spaces. You can you, you can only have so many people, right? Right. I mean, the house is big. The rooms are small. Uh, so, yeah, there is limited space available. But, uh, yeah, we just let people have at it in the dark. It's, it's fun to spectate it. <laughs> so g give me an idea how they would go about solving the murder. What, what, what do they do? Okay, so the game is really a process of elimination, um, kind of like the board game. The suspects are in, they're, uh, you know, they're each in a room, and you go around and ask them, kind of using a lanyard, um, you know, do you have a suspect card, a room card, a weapon card that you can show me? And uh, you kind of communicate with them like that to ultimately figure out who did it. Okay, so it, it is basically the game but a live action version of the game where yeah. that's because that's how you play the game you actually ask people do you have uh, you know uh, you make an accusation and they will show you a card and that says okay that's not that that room wasn't right yeah. or that web okay that's cool that's a lot of fun is this a this isn't the first time you've done that right i think you said you've done it before oh no we've been doing uh clue for uh probably at least at least 10 years now it's it's still a great fundraiser um for us and it it really is fun you must have people then playing the role of bishop brown and and ella and mary do you yeah 
Yep. Um, my mom is almost always Mary, and uh, she doesn't tune into any of the paranormal things that happen in Mary's <laughs> room because in there in the dark. <laughs> That's so funny, but that sounds like a great time. How if if someone was in the area and wanted to participate, how can they do that? Uh, tickets are for sale on our website, guyinghistory.com, under the shop tab. When we still do have some tickets left, so if you are close, if you're in the area, in Ohio, come see us. Let's spend just a minute, and and we're, we're I'm taking you over the time I said I was going to keep you, so I apologize. But just spend a minute talking about Galleon itself because that was the other thing that struck us when we were there. What a cute town what a neat little place thank you yeah we have a lot of um industrial history um we're pretty well known for making road machinery the galleon brand road machinery um we had like peabody um that made dump trucks so um we had north electric they produced the erica phone i don't know if you're familiar with the erica phone uh from the 70s it came in all different colors uh I have but, no idea what that is. Is that a, like just a, a style of a phone or was it a specific yeah. technology of, of a phone? So um, it was invented in Sweden and, and we produced it here in Galleon, but they also called it the Cobra phone because like the rotary dial was on the bottom and it had like a really long oh, okay. neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll have to Google it. Um, really cool. Like they came in a, a million colors. So people, of course, would buy, you know, whatever matched their home decor. It was really fun. But um, yeah, we certainly have a lot of industrial history here in Galleon. It, it used to be um, a real big uh, boom town. It used to be the place to live. But yeah, I, well, I mean, the, the homes are gorgeous. <laughs> and one of the things we asked you, I think, at the time was, you know, what what was, what was the economic engine for this community? Because obviously a lot of people did well here and uh, some beautiful buildings and beautiful homes, the Brownella Cottage being one of them. And we should mention, too, uh, in case you haven't figured it out, folks, the name Brownella for Brownella Cottage comes from what, Tanisha? <laughs> um, it's named after Ella Brown. It's her name backwards, Brownella. It's really cool. Um, let's see. What else can we, if people want to contribute, I mean, uh, do you have a donations page or something if people want to offer some support? Absolutely. On our website, there's a support tab. You can go in um, and donate. Um, if you're interested in hearing more about Bishop Brown, we do have an audio tour that you can buy on the website called the Red Bishop Tour. You can listen to it just like you would a podcast. Um, and you know, that's a good 45 minute deep dive into his heresy trials. So, so cool. And you know, the other thing about this too, if, if you're, if you're curious about all of this, I know that when we were in the Bishop's study for a while, there's a lot of, a lot of people wrote a lot of things about this. This was at the time a very, very important news story to a lot of people. And there are a lot of journalists that were writing about it. There were a lot of authors and historians that were writing about it. It was it was something that was really paid attention to. So there's a lot of opinion. There's a lot of contemporary accounts of what was going on. Uh, you've got a lot of that stuff there on site. But that's, that's stuff, too, that will help fill in some of these blanks. I always tell people I could wallpaper this house in newspaper clippings about Bishop Brown. And I mean it. It was, like you said, it, there was quite a media frenzy around the heresy trial yeah it sounds like it was the i hate to make this comparison so forgive me ahead of time but it sounds like it was the oj simpson trial of its day yeah kind of kind of right okay all right so that yeah. wasn't too bad i feel a little bad making that comparison because he wasn't um, that he wasn't a murderer 
Uh, you know, it's funny. They had over 400 reporters show up the first day of the trial. And by the end of the week, like hardly anybody was there because it was boring. <laughs> like, people, like argue theology. It, it wasn't as riveting as a murder trial. I mean, it, the, the, the interest kind of waned by the end of the week once they realized, oh, we're just going to argue about the Bible. <laughs> That makes sense uh, when you think about it. Where was the heresy trial held? Where did that happen? Uh, it was in Trinity Parish Hall, uh, part of Trinity Cathedral in Cleveland, Ohio. Man. Bishop really worked to have it here in Galleon. And according to church canon law, he should have had the right to pick where that trial was. Um, but they made him do it in Cleveland just because they knew the kind of attention that it was going to get. And Trinity is quite a large church, so... All right. Well, Tanisha, you've been very, very generous with your time today. You were generous when we were there uh, with your time and with your information and allowing us access to Brownella Cottage and all the uh, surrounding grounds. So thank you so much for everything. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Please come back and see us again. We will. And once again, the website for uh, whether it's uh, merchandise, books, tickets, whatever it is, uh, what's the website again? GallianHistory.com. And again, thank you. And thank you to the board of directors. We had a bunch of people stop in and say hello. That was really nice to, to meet some of those folks and um, pass on our well wishes to all of them as well. I certainly will. All right. Thank you, uh, Tanisha Pickering, Executive Director of the Galleon History Center, GallianHistory.com, if you want to get more information about what they do. I've worked with a lot of uh, history centers and history organizations and committees and all of that. Not all of them uh, do the job that the Galleon History Center does. They are really top-notch, and they're doing a great job of preserving some very important history, um, not just to Galleon, not just to Ohio, but really to to the whole country and maybe even the world. I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable trial. It really has that kind of weight to it. So, all right. So remember, everybody, we're going to have uh, live investigations coming up next weekend, not this coming weekend, the following weekend, the 27th and 28th. We will be with the Ghost Sisters again. We're looking forward to another collaboration with them. They are so awesome. And we will be at the Cooper Hill Village in, in Bland, Missouri. I have to remember where that is. It's uh, in the middle of the country. A lot of traveling for all of us, but we're looking forward to it because it's supposed to be a spectacular place. Thanks for being here. And remember, we will have uh, another evidence review broadcast between now and the live investigation coming up. I don't know what night that'll be, but you can count on it happening between now and then. And we look forward to seeing you all then. So again, thanks for your time and uh, have, the, have a great rest of your day. We'll see you.